Well, good morning, everyone. Such a joy and delight to be in the house of the Lord and to have a, a living word that we can study and grow in and thankful for our great King, for the freedom we have in Christ, so to grow in holiness and to serve Him. And it's good to be with you this morning. It's good to be gathered together in His presence. Reminder that out in the foyer, right next to the main doors going out, is a table of books of recommended resources that Pastor Brian and myself has put together to help us grow throughout the summer, throughout the rest of this year, and the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's books there for different levels and different uh, depths of understanding. So take a chance, look at the books, page through some of them. If you find one that's interesting, go ahead and go to our website, go to the app. You can go and click directly on the link and order the book directly, and it'll show up in your, your mailbox in due season. So it's good to have opportunities to grow while we have the opportunity to grow. I want to give a special thanks to those that helped our church picnic to be such a success last week. It was such a great gathering on a beautiful Sunday afternoon, and there was a lot of hard work that was thrown in, but especially Amy White and Katrina and Eileen Ladendorf and Mark and Melissa Bates, and I think that not everyone's even here this morning, Kirk Sundahl. So thank you for your hard work on our behalf. Thank you for a wonderful day that we had together, and I know it's something we want to do again. So if you weren't able to make it this year, already cross out all the excuses for not going next year because there's not a good one, and then plan on being with us as we get together and have fellowship and play games together and enjoy the goodness of the Lord. At this time, if you have not, please uh, make sure your cell phones are turned to silent. As we live stream our services, we want to limit any interruptions, and that's one easily preventable interruption that we can deal with this morning. Good morning to those of you joining us online. It is good to be with you. Thank you for using technology in a good way to fellowship with the saints of God. And wherever you might be, please open your copy of God's Word to Matthew 14 as we prepare to study the Word of God this morning. Hudson Taylor was a pioneer missionary to China in the 1800s, and he was the founder of the China Inland Mission. He had a great faith and complete trust in the faithfulness of a sovereign and good God. And he writes in his journal entries again and again about how God just directed and guided and provided for him. And he gives one example. He says, Our Heavenly Father isn't a very, very experienced father. He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect that he will send three million missionaries to China, but if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. Depend on it. God's work, done in God's way, will never lack God's supply. It's a good reminder for us that we have a God upon whom we can completely place our trust, for he promises to provide and to guide and it might seem odd this morning that I would begin with a quote from a, a missionary from 150 years ago to get us ready for the passage that we're looking at this morning. But I think it sets the table well for what we will see in Matthew 14, verses 13 and 21. Jesus, as the Messiah, has been teaching about the kingdom of heaven, has been performing miracles. He's been teaching about the true nature of God. And in the passage we'll look at this morning, he will show both his mercy and his power as the king of the kingdom of heaven that he ushers in. 
And so in this miracle that we will study this morning, we're going to have a reminder lurking in the background of manna that was provided in the wilderness as Jesus this morning will show us how he prepares a feast in a desolate area for a needy and hungry crowd. I know that we have already been standing a lot this morning, but as we hear from God speaking to us through his word, I invite you to stand once again as we read our passage for this morning, Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21. And the beautiful and inspired and holy word of God says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down in the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, as we read your word, we recognize that it, it comes from you as a gift to us, that not only are you its author, but you're its interpreter. And so, Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to understand and hearts to be open to receive what you've given us in your word. And Father, would you cause all distractions to be banished, that we would not bring in the burdens from this week, but lay them at your feet, that we would not bring in the anxieties of the week to come, but give them to the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we might hear and see and know and believe and grow because you've taught us through your word. And so to that end, Father, we depend upon you that through your spirit you would teach us, that we would learn and know more about our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose wonderful and precious name we pray. Amen. On the passage we looked at last week, we saw that John the Baptist had been killed in a sinful and bloody manner. And the story showed the contrast between the growing and I would say glowing righteousness of John the Baptist as a faithful witness to the truth and contrasting that with the dark, irrational side of the sinner when given over to lustful desires. John, in a way probably far more, better than he ever would have imagined, learned the truths of the promises of Jesus who said in Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a contrast between the wickedness of Herod Antipas that we looked at in some detail last week and then what we will see today from our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've not already done so, I encourage you to turn to your bulletin to look at the sermon outline to have pen ready or be on the church app where you can take notes and then send them to someone after the service. But as we're taking notes and learning, 
uh, this time now, let's be prepared for whom, with whom we might share them throughout the week. And our first major point this morning is the compassionate Messiah. The compassionate Messiah. According to the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, the word compassion means quality of growing kindness or favor, of being gracious or of having pity or mercy. And we're going to see that definition lived out through the the works of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Jesus is the embodiment of compassion. Both in his words and in his actions towards others, he shows the heart, the character, the nature, the kindness of God. So as we begin to study into this passage this morning with your copy of God's word open in front of you, we begin with a question. And I let you know that I have stolen this question directly and completely from a well-known national airline in their advertising campaign with the question, want to get away? And our text begins. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now going back to Matthew chapter 4 verse 12, Jesus had heard that John the Baptist had been put into prison. And that was the reason then for him to leave that region and to go into Galilee and to begin his ministry in Galilee. And that ministry would take him almost to the end of what we have in Matthew, the end of chapter 13, where for a few verses we find Jesus back in Nazareth, where he has been rejected by his hometown. And then as we saw last week, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12 becomes a flashback in time going back to see, well, what happened from the time when John was put into prison? What happened to him? And then we hear the story of how he died a martyr's death, faithful to the Lord to the end. And so Jesus, after he had been in this time in Nazareth, he had been opposed by his own hometown. And now he hears of the death of John the Baptist, and he withdraws to a desolate place, we are told, in Matthew 14, verse 13. He, get, he does that in order to leave the area of Herod Antipas. But he was not fleeing because he was afraid. Perhaps he was leaving that area because he's mourning the loss of a dear friend. He needs time to mourn. Perhaps he's going there because he needs time to pray. But one thing he was not doing was he was not fleeing the territory of Herod Antipas because he was afraid. Jesus knows why he came to earth. He knows who he was. He knows what he has come to do. And if he has left the privileged place of heaven with all of the glories and privileges and powers that he has to come down here to earth to redeem a people, he surely will not be afraid of what could happen to him here below. He through whom all things were created, he who upholds all things by the power of his word, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, certainly will not be afraid of a human king. So he's leaving that area for other purposes, and when the appointed day comes, he will set his face firmly and march into Jerusalem and stand trial before Romans and Jews, including Herod Antipas. But in the meantime, he is resolute to do what God the Father wants him to do and do it in his perfect timing, and the time for him to die is not now. And so he continues in his messianic ministry. And he sees that there's resistance that's going on from Herod Antipas in the region of Perea. 
and, and for a time even in G Galilee, and so he's going to continue to move on. But whereas Herod and his cohorts and many people in the regions of Perea and Galilee are not ready to listen to Jesus just yet, we see that others will, and so we see the eager crowd. And as we continue then, in the second part of verse 13, our text says, But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. I think here we see the phenomenon of what could be called the bush telephone. You know, in ancient times and sometimes even in rural areas, you know, you start to whisper the whisper campaign, you know, that's going on in the bush where word just passes from place to place and person to person. I saw this firsthand when we were in the country of Kenya in 1986, and we would want to show the Jesus film in a village. And all we had to do was just start to give word to a couple of people. And remember the old saying, and they told two people, and they told two people, and so on and so on. That's the bush telephone, okay? So that's what's going on here where people are passing on the word that this Messiah, this miracle worker, this great teacher is move, on the move. And so the crowds hear, well, where Jesus is going. And so they go off in pursuit of him. You know, once these rumors get started, sometimes they're hard to stop. But how would they know where he's going? It says when the crowds heard it, they followed him. How would they know? Well, the, the topography and the geography of the Sea of Galilee help us out here. Because actually the Sea of Galilee is like an oblong bowl that sits at the bottom of surrounding foothills. And so it's easy to be up on top and look out over the Sea of Galilee. And depending on at what part they get into the boat and the Sea of Galilee and what direction they take off, it becomes very easy to figure out where they're going. And so that's what's happening here. The crowds see Jesus get into the boat and they see what direction he's taking off. And so they start moving quickly along the shoreline to get to that city or that location. Sometimes they even arrive before he gets there. So the destination of Jesus here would be on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, perhaps in what we would call the Golan Heights today, near the city of Bethsaida. It's referred to as a desolate place. For some reason, Jesus wants to get alone, probably to get alone with the disciples, to teach them about what's going on, to prepare them, and probably to have a time of mourning because John the Baptist has died. We know that in the previous chapters, the, the opposition of the religious leaders is growing, it's gaining in, in strength, and the crowds are getting larger and larger, and at times more demanding on what they expect of Jesus. And Jesus wants to spend more time with the disciples to prepare them, because they are the ones to carry on the work after he has gone back to the Father. So if he had... If he had it in mind to have a time of retreat, to have a time of personal training and teaching with the apostles, to have more time to pray, well, what happened? When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. The masses of people had rushed around the edge of the lake, around to where Jesus was heading, and they took the short route to get there, and there were many of them there to greet him as he arrived. And so now he finds that perhaps his plans are Disrupted. He wanted to have a private time of teaching, but apparently that could not continue. But I find great encouragement in this passage. I mean, think about it. People running after Jesus to hear from him. Running to be in his presence. They can't wait to hear what he's going to say. They can't wait to see what he's going to do. The 
determined even to walk trails around the edge of a lake so they can get to be there and be with people who are gathered who want to see Jesus and be with him. And I, I just wonder what that says to us today. Are we those who rush to hear from Jesus? Are we those who are willing to make every effort to do anything, to go any place, to spend whatever time is necessary so that we can be with Jesus and hear from him and be taught by him and grow in him? Is Jesus your great pursuit and quest each day? Do you wake up in the morning and say, thank you, Lord, for a new day, a day to eat and to drink and to play and to pray and to be with friends and to work? And you say, but above it all, I want to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and your great pursuit and quest is of Jesus. We all run after all kinds of things. Many of them are, are good. Many of them are, are responsibilities. But let's make sure that our greatest pursuit is pursuing fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ and seeking to serve him day by day. Let's be like that eager crowd. We just can't get enough of Jesus. We just want to keep going and being with him. And then we see healing from all. We're told when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. I suppose Jesus at one hand could have been tempted to say, hey, you know what, guys, come back at a more convenient time. It's really not fitting in with my schedule right now. Maybe we can postpone and have this done tomorrow. I need some personal time with my guys. Instead, we're told he has compassion towards the crowd. It's very similar to what we see in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. Jesus sees the crowd. He knows he's the great shepherd. He looks at the crowd and sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd, and his heart goes out to him. And so just a few lines, a few words on a page, we see that Jesus shows us what compassion looks like. It's laying down our own plans and desires for the benefits and well-being of others. And I love the, the, this meaning, compassion, what it means. There's a translation that I think captures it so well. It says, his insides were stirred up. And when Jesus sees the needs of the crowd, when he sees that they're sheep without a shepherd, his insides are stirred up. He wants to be involved in helping them. He wants to be involved in teaching. He, he probably was tired himself. Maybe he was grieving himself. And his heart was moved to help those who were in need, and so he heals the sick. And we're not told the nature of the sicknesses. We just, whatever their problem was, he healed them. He heals their physical needs. Of course, these physical needs will point to the greater spiritual needs that, of course, he will meet as well. But I love the picture that we see here. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great redemptive work, restores all that was lost at Adam. Now, it's not just in this verse. It's the wholeness of his ministry. But he came to restore all that sin had ruined, all that was lost in Adam. And he's bringing in his program of redemption that heals us from our sins and our sicknesses that will eventually restore peace between us and God, peace between us and each other, peace between us and creation. And we see his compassion showing up as he demonstrates power over sickness, power over nature, power even over sin. What a great Savior we have. He is our compassionate Messiah. And then we see the discipleship challenge, the discipleship challenge. Especially during the time of COVID, 
with the influence of social media, there were a number of challenges that became popular. You may have heard of the ice bucket challenge where you'd pour cold water over your head with the idea of raising money to help heal Lou Gehrig's disease. You might have heard of the fluff challenge where you have a, a blanket and you stand next to a door and you have a pet and you, you hold the blanket and then you drop the blanket and disappear behind the door and look at the reaction of your pet as its master has disappeared. You may have heard of the 10-year challenge where you, you put a picture of what you look like today and what you looked like 10 years ago and who has aged the best. All of these different challenges, but they all have various degrees of seriousness, but one thing they all have in common, they're temporary. These challenges are temporary. But in this passage, Jesus will issue a far more important challenge, that of discipleship. And he's getting us ready for what he will give to the church, give to the apostles at the end of the gospel, according to Matthew, what's called the Great Commission, the sending out of the apostles to make disciples of every people group all around the world. And that is the role of the church today, to preach the gospel to all, and to those who repent and believe and respond, to train and build them up in the faith so that they become faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is not to make converts. The goal is not to just get decisions. The goal and the command is to make disciples. And what are disciples? Those who follow and trust Jesus the whole of their lives. To use all of one's life, all for his glory. So the call is for us to be disciples. Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ today? He gives the command, come and follow me. And he will train and teach us and prepare us so that we can be his representatives. So we do well to consider our response to that question. Are we disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ? But in Matthew 14, as Jesus sees this mass of people, the disciples also see this mass of people. And they're trying to figure out what they should do. And so they announce to Jesus that it's dinner time. And our text says, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. On that wonderful day that Matthew just uses just a few words to describe, Jesus has been healing the sick for quite a while. He's had a ministry. He's heard of difficult news. He's crossed the Sea of Galilee. And now he spends time healing those that are sick. And so as time is slipping away and as evening is approaching, the crowds are still there. And the disciples, who are growing in their understanding, as we see in Matthew 13, 51, still have not fully understood who Jesus is. And that will become more apparent as we get closer and closer to the cross. But they do show at least some compassion here. It's time to eat. And we don't have enough to feed these people. If they're to get anything to eat, it is now time for them to go to the surrounding villages and scrounge up what they can find before it's too late. But if there's a little bit of compassion on their part, there's also some misunderstanding, and, and Jesus is going to point that out. There's more for them to learn. There's more for them to understand. And aren't we glad that Jesus is gracious with us? Because we arrive at a level of understanding. There's certain things that we grasp. There's certain things that we know. But the more he exposes himself to us in his word, the more we realize, ah, class is not yet over. And there's more sessions and there's more learning, and yet he does it with his graciously teaching us new lessons. And that's what he's going to do with his disciples here. 
We have mention a second time of a desolate place. And the question might be, what could possibly happen in a desolate place? What can we do to help these people? And I love the word that's there. It's a ramos, and a ramos means isolated. Isolated, desolate. What could happen in such a place? Oh, but if people have ears to hear and eyes to see, they'll understand that lurking in the background is this pilgrimage that the people of Israel took through the wilderness. And at many times in their own journey, they would realize they had nothing to eat and who would provide for them? And why did you bring us to this place? And who's going to provide for us anyway? And they begin to complain. Well, here the disciples notice that the need is there even before the people start to complain. And so they're showing some degree of compassion. But then they feel the need to inform the Lord of the situation, which I find kind of humorous. They've got to come and inform the Lord as if somehow the Lord wasn't aware of what was going on. And then as they inform him, and it's very clear in the original language, they actually give him a command. It's in the imperative form. Send the crowds away. I'm trying to imagine me standing in the presence of God and I'm going to give him some information and I'm going to direct him what his path should be, what steps he should take. But it's very clearly a command on their part. As I was preparing this morning, uh, the, for the message for this morning, and I was thinking of just how oftentimes we tend to overlook what is in front of us because we only see what's lacking, not what is provided. We only see what we can do, but what we can't do, and we forget who we're walking with, who we're talking with, our Lord Jesus Christ. I came across this little poem. It says, as you travel down life's pathways, may this ever be your goal. Keep your eyes upon the donut and not upon the hole. And I'm thinking there's some profound wisdom there. We're often looking around at what we don't have. The disciples were looking around at what they don't have. And they're saying, go off to the villages and let them take care of themselves. And they failed to notice that the solution was right there in front of them. So they go to Jesus and say, send them away and let them fend for themselves. So as we talk about what's happening here, let's take a moment now just to contrast what we've seen so far in chapter 14. Because as Matthew is organizing his materials, he's doing so with great intentionality. And in chapter 14, we see a great contrast between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of heaven. We have the degenerate feast, what we called last week the demented feast of Herod Antipas. And that's contrasted with this humble yet holy feast that's about to begin. We have Herod, who has a drunken party for his friends, and Jesus is going to have a joyful party for the crowds. As pastor and commentator Daniel Doriani says, Herod meets with the rich and powerful. Jesus feeds the common folk and those in need. Herod sought his own pride and glory. Jesus saves the people and glorifies the Father. So we see the contrast between this wicked wannabe Herod who wants to be called king contrasted with the compassionate and generous actions of the real king, the Lord Jesus Christ who is king of the kingdom of heaven, king of the kingdom that he's bringing in. So after the, the apostles come to him, the disciples come to him and they give their plea that Jesus should send the crowds away, Jesus will have a response of his own which we might call the test of faith. 
the test of faith. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat, verse 16. Jesus knows who he is from where he has come and what he will do. He knows that he is the bread of life. Now, in the first century, by the time we, we arrive at these events in Jesus, there was a, com a common Jewish custom or a thought that when the Messiah comes, he will bring back the manna from God. They remember their history. They remember what God did in the past. And they say, when Messiah comes, he will bring back the manna. Now, he won't take time this morning, but in the parallel accounts of John chapter 6, where Jesus gives his I am the bread of life discourse, he is interacting with the Jewish leaders. And Jesus makes very clear the relationship between Moses and the manna of old. And Jesus as the Son of Man, who is the new manna that comes down from heaven. And so I'm just going to read a few verses. Take note, John 6, 48 to 51, they will be on the screen behind me. Where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus gives the food of eternal life because he is the bread of life. The physical bread that is here is a symbol of the power that he has over life and creation itself. Bread being the very basic element of one's diet almost universally is what Jesus gives so that people may live, but they have eternal life if they eat of the bread of life because in him and him alone is the source of life. And Jesus knows all this, so he wants to test his disciples. So he says to them, well, the crowds can stay. They don't need to go anywhere. You've given me a command. Let me give you one. You give them something to eat. And in the original language, the you is in the emphatic position in the sentence, which means that's what draws attention. You give them something to eat. He's giving them a test of their understanding of themselves and who he is. And as a result of this test and this discipleship challenge, he wants them to realize the futility of human strength. The futility of human strength. And they said to him, verse 17, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Are they going to pass the test? Well, they do make a quick inventory assessment. They check their bags. They check their supplies. They check within the crowd. We get information from other accounts whether it's Mark 6 or John 6, to find out that they have five loaves and two fish. And they reply in Mark 6 and in John 6, it would take 200 denarii to feed this entire group. It would take all that I have earned over eight months. All that we have earned over eight months to provide for this crowd for one simple meal. And they're very quickly coming to the end of their own resources, realizing their own limitations. Now, I don't believe there's anything magical about the five loaves and the two fish. I don't think we should go looking for hidden meaning behind the five loaves and the two fish. Other than that, that was the inventory assessment of what they had on that day. And we learn from John chapter 6 that this came from a small boy. And the fact that they were barley loaves, little small pieces of bread. Barley was 
the food that the poor people ate. They made their bread from barley. The rich could afford to make their bread from wheat. So here we have this small boy's lunch, just a few pieces of bread, a few small pieces of fish. What could they do? They recognize they're not capable in themselves with their own resources to provide for their people. It was a good lesson for them to learn. They can't do it. With all of their efforts, with all of their resources, with all of their abilities, with all that they had, they couldn't do it. It was good for them to come to the end of themselves. My friends, it is good for us to come to the end of ourselves and realize we can't do it unless Jesus commands us. Yes, there are commands that Jesus gives that we cannot fulfill in our own power and can only do them if he empowers us to fulfill them. And as we look at the great needs of the world, as we look at the great situations that are going on, there is only one Savior with a capital F. And I hate to tell you, but he's not sitting here this morning, and he's not speaking to you this morning. There's only one Savior with a capital S. And it's good for us to come to the end of ourselves, because when we do, then we can go to the one who truly can do something and find that he is more than able to abundantly provide for all that is needed in every situation. Will we pass the discipleship challenge? When we come up against difficulties in life, will we strain and stress and try to do everything we can to be the saviors of our own situation? Or will we recognize that as talented or as gifted or as wealthy as we might be, to accomplish supernatural work requires supernatural ability and we can trust in the Lord to do it. And then as he gives us and provides for us and leads us, he'll get the job done. Thirdly, we see the messianic provision. The messianic provision. I want us to miss the importance of what's happening here. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, have many miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ performed. But besides the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only miracle mentioned in all four Gospels. It's not a fact just to pass a test and a Bible quiz. It should get us our attention that God, as he is leading these men to, to record and to write about the lives of Jesus, that all of them were led to write this miracle as something very important that's happening. And it should get our attention. And so Jesus says to them, in effect, give me what you have. The disciples say that we have only five loaves and two fish. That's good enough to provide for us, they think, much less for a crowd so large. This is all we have, Lord. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 18, and he said, bring them here to me. I think that's a great answer. Whatever the Lord has given us, whatever we have, whatever the solution is, whatever the need is, we bring what we have to Jesus and say, hey, make something of it so that your name is glorified, so that you are lifted high, so that you are exalted. And as the story unfolds, there are shadows of some of the great prophets of old. There's shadows of Moses. There's shadows of Elisha. There's shadows of Elijah. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah is sent to a prophet, uh, I'm sorry, is sent to a widow. He's sent as a prophet to a widow, 
but to a widow who is outside of Israel, who is commanded that if she sees Elijah first, though she is of meager means, that her flour and her oil will continue until the rains come. So she did. She took God at his word. She provided for the prophet, and the Lord provided for her. But now there's a greater prophet than Elijah who has come. In 2 Kings 4, a man brings 20 loaves. Now, these loaves are just little tiny pieces of bread. They're not what we think of as large loaves that you might buy in the supermarket. A man brings 20 loaves of barley and ears of grain, but there are 100 men to feed them. And in response, the prophet Elisha says, they shall eat and they shall have some left. And the text says, and he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. There was a miracle that had been performed there to feed this hungry group of men with a meager supply. The prophet asked, God answered, people were provided, but now there's one even greater than Elisha. Jesus knows what he is doing. He knows of the Jewish expectation that manna would come back when the Messiah came. It was also thought that the Messiah would come back in the springtime, around the time of the Passover. And guess what? That's the timing of what's happening here in Matthew 14. Jesus is intentionally fulfilling expectations and prophecies and predictions because he knows he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. These bread and fish were the basic staples of life in Galilee. And Jesus is about to multiply them to feed a crowd. So we might ask a question at this point. Here Jesus is so ready to multiply the bread, to produce great abundance of food, whereas back in Matthew 4, he refuses to turn stones into bread. I think it's helpful to understand that he is in control. He will do what he will do, when he will do it, according to his perfect time, according to his perfect purposes. In Matthew 4, as he is living out perfect obedience and recapitulating, as it were, the history of Israel and goes off into the wilderness and is tempted, he will not give in to the temptation like Israel did time and again in the, in the wilderness. And so when the devil comes to him and says, hey, turn these stones into bread, you're a hungry guy. Because I'm going to depend upon the Father for daily bread. I shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so he does it in chapter 4. He does not turn the stones into bread because it's for, for, for obedience sake, for fulfilling all righteousness, for being the perfect sacrifice for sin that can be offered one day. But here in chapter 14... He wants to display the generosity of God, the kindness of God, the ability of God. He could have turned those stones into bread in Matthew 4. He's the one through whom all things were created. He upholds all things by the power of his word. But here in chapter 14, he's going to show the generosity and power and provide for others to show where the bread of life is, not to satisfy his own desires as the devil tempted him to do in Matthew 14. Here it was to serve others to show the goodness of God. And so as he prepares the bread and fish, he calls out, come to the table and dine. And we're told that he, in verse 19, ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. It just stands to reason there needs to be a little bit of crowd control for what is to come. Mark chapter 6 says that he told them to sit down in groups of 50 and 100, probably arranging according to their families, according to their larger tribal identities. 
but there needed to be some type of order for what was to come. Tells them to sit down in the grass, which means this must have been in the springtime, after the rains, where there would be grass for them to sit on instead of being just rocks and dust. And because the Jews were expecting the manna to return in the springtime, and they were expecting that there would be this great appearance, this is not all happening by accident. You know, as we look at different points in the pilgrimage of the people of God in the Old Testament, there are times where they're in great desperation and God promises that he will do something. And they would even ask a question like, will there be a table spread in the wilderness? Perhaps some people, as they're covering the hillsides of that day in the area of Bethsaida on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, saying, how are we going to be provided for? Will there, in fact, be a table spread in the wilderness? You may say, why am I emphasizing that point? Because of the word that's used. Very specific word that was used. He ordered them to sit down on the grass. It's used in classical terms and in the New Testament to recline on a couch and dine. It's a word that is used, come to the table and get ready to eat. Jesus is, even with the words of the command, is telling the crowd that there's going to be a feast, there's going to be a banquet Sit down, come to the table, and let's eat. Because that's what our God does. Think of all the times in the scriptures where God uses the illustration of food to talk about our fellowship with him. Carries all the way to the end, where he even commands the church in Revelation 3, open the door and let me come in, that we'll dine together. And then we have that illustration of the people of God dining with Jesus at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus is telling the people, come and dine with me. Let's sit down. You know, over history, it has been a, a Middle Eastern value of those living in, whether they're Aramaic background, Hebrew background, Arabic background, they take care of those who are in their domain. If someone has come into your domain, you are required to take care of them, to feed them, to provide them, protect them. We experienced that. When we were in Jordan, when we were invited to someone's home, they said, you're in our domain. It's, it's even in their greeting. And they would want to give us food and want to make sure that we were taken care of. And, and he, what is Jesus doing here? He's taking care of his own. And in a larger picture then, as he takes care of his own, is that not what God does? Because if the whole earth is God's and we live in it, and we are his children, then does he not obligate himself to take care of us? And he does. This is why he promises to meet our needs, which is why he promises to take care of us wherever we may go. That way we can never be outside of his care. And so we would hear then in the background that invitation that was given through the prophets, the prophet Isaiah, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and who has no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. The Messiah is giving the invitation to the people, sit and dine. The meal is about ready to be prepared. And so we have a prayer and provision. Prayer and provision. The text goes on and says, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. He's taking on the typical posture of prayer for the, the pious Jewish man who would stand, lift his arms in the air, 
look up to heaven and pray. A common Jewish prayer at that time that was said before a meal was, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the earth, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. That would have been a very common prayer, perhaps what Jesus even recited here. We're not given the words, but it certainly is fitting. And then if we think in the context of the gospel according to Matthew, and we think of this prayer of God providing, uh, Jesus providing the bread that they will need, and this being a common Jewish expectation that God would bring the manna, when we get to Matthew chapter 6 and we see where Jesus teaches us how to pray, it says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us this day our daily bread. You see, it's consistent with the character and conduct of God of how he promises to provide for his people all that they need, but they do it because they recognize that it is he who is the giver. And the prayer here is going to bless the one who gives, not necessarily to bless the bread that has been given. All that we need comes from the Lord, and we bless his name as he meets our daily needs. And then we're told that he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. I like what Jesus is demonstrating here. Remember, he's training these men to be spiritual leaders to govern the church after he leaves. And so as he's blessing the bread and multiplying, he gives it to the disciples who then in turn distribute it to the crowds. And there's a celebration that's in the air. And he's working through his servants that he has chosen, saying, you will be the ones that will serve in my name. I want to teach you what service looks like. Serve these people and make sure that they eat. It's one thing for us to pray that God would provide. We also pray that we would be part of the solution, at least the vessel through which God will bring the blessing. And that's what these disciples are. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So I want you, if you can allow your mind to just kind of imagine the situation of hillsides. We have plenty of hillsides around here. I want you to imagine... 5,000 men plus women and children scurrying over the hillsides as baskets of bread and fish are being passed around. And imagine the excitement and the party that's going on as mothers are making sure that their children have enough to eat, as men are making sure that their, their families are being provided for, that there's this celebration that is ringing across the countryside of bread that is being provided because of God's rich provision. We get... We get so used to going through a drive-thru and going through a supermarket and grabbing a quick lunch that we forget what it must be like to be out on a hillside where there's nothing around and suddenly there is a feast that's prepared. And that's what God wants to do to us in the wilderness of our lives. He invites us to come and have a feast with him. And what a feast it was. I, I look forward to, I've said this before, but I look forward to when we're all in the presence of the Lord and we have family time and he's showing us the movies of how he did things and I really want to have more information on what it looked like here and the celebration that was going on. And I think we'll just continue to be amazed at how our God orchestrates all things so that he is glorified in all things. So here we have 5,000 men besides women and children, as many as fifteen or 20,000 people five loaves and two fish and they all ate and were satisfied now to feed that many people until they're all satisfied this meal would have gone on for some time 
and it provided for everybody that was there, even for the apostles and the disciples. It's a blessing to be in the Lord's service because in how God works things, as we serve the Lord, he provides for us. Look at how he provided for the apostles here. He provided for their needs just as much as he did for the people that they were serving. And if we're serving the Lord in whatever capacity, as we are serving the Lord, he'll also provide for us so that there's joy and there's praise and there's worship and there's adoration that is given to him. And then, after this party, after this miraculous gift, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. Of the broken, 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. The Lord is lavish in his blessings. There was more after the meal than there was before. And imagine now as the apostles, as the disciples, as they've been serving, now as they start gathering the leftover pieces and start filling the baskets, one, two, three, four, five baskets full, six, seven, all the way to where there's 12 baskets. And then imagine the disciples standing there, each with a basket full in his hand, looking at each other, wondering what has happened, what have they just learned, and who is this man? And being overwhelmed by the generosity and goodness of God. Jesus, who has fed his people in the wilderness, just as God fed the people in the wilderness through Moses with the manna, just as God, through the prophets Elijah and Elisha, provided miracles so that people's needs would be met. In chapter 14, we see that Jesus, as it were, is the new Moses with the new manna, who is the fulfillment of all the prophets who promises to take care of the needs of his people. Therefore, we can pray with assurance, give us this day our daily bread. And then think of what this points back to, the provision in the wilderness for over 40 years, but think more what it points forward to. That day when we will all be gathered in the presence of the Lord at the wedding feast of the Lamb, and we dine at the Master's table and enjoy fellowship with Him forever. Jesus is fulfilling the perfect obedience, the perfect provision, the perfect righteousness required to achieve our salvation. He is the true manna, the true bread of life, who gives to all who come to him, who feeds and provides for his children, who is lavish and gracious in his love, who gives until it overflows, who says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Have you come to Jesus to be fed? Have you come to Jesus to gain eternal life because of his great and lavish perfect provision for you. He continues to call out to each one and say, I have more than enough to save you and to secure you and to keep you. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come unto me, all you who are hungry and need thirst. For whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As I was preparing this story this week, that hymn came to mind, just parts of which say, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till there's no more lack. Feed me till I'm just saturated and, and satiated. And I had to ask myself, is that the cry of my heart? 
Do I really cry out to God to feed me so that I'm satisfied in him? Is that the cry of your heart? Do you cry out to him to feed you so that you're fully satisfied in him? And then being fully satisfied in him, you can truly enjoy the blessings that he gives you. Jesus knows what to do, the timing that he will do it, the manner in which he will do it, and through whom he will do it, so that he gets the glory and the focus and the attention. But our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't wait just to invite the rich and the powerful and the depraved like King Herod. He takes care of the undeserving and the needy, not the entitled and the self-satisfied. But those who come to him, they find themselves full with abundant leftovers besides. And so we, as the people of God, have this great opportunity because we have that same charge to go out and announce the message of Jesus to all nations. And I hope already you're making provisions and plans to be part of the missions conference in September, setting aside two and three and four days so that you can come and hear about what God is doing around the world and what we can be doing because that remains the charge to go out and feed the nations with the gospel and feed those who need to hear about Christ and all who repent and believe will receive the bread of life and have eternal life. And so as long as we have breath, as long as we have opportunity, we who were once hungry, we who were once away, have one great privilege, and that is to go and tell hungry beggars where to find the bread of life. And what a privilege that is as we are his children. Well, next week we'll see another amazing story of Jesus as he walks on the water and shows that he has power over nature. But until then, what are some lessons we can take away from our time today in the Word? Because Jesus is compassionate and merciful, we ask him to empower us to do the same to those around us. He was willing to continually meet the needs of those that were around him because that's what mercy and compassion does. Because Jesus is the bread of life, we will come to him daily to live and be strengthened in our faith. We need to feed on God's word and be fed by God's word daily that Jesus would be our life daily. Because Jesus can use us and what we have for his glory, we gladly commit ourselves and our goods to him. What do we have that we have not received from the hand of God? Therefore, all that we have, we can joyfully make available for his service. And because all that we have comes from the Lord, we will give thanks and be willing to share it with others. There's no greater blessing than to be used as a vessel of blessing towards others as we allow his blessings to flow through us into the lives of others. And then we live in hope because we will dine with Jesus in his presence one day. We will live each day in light of that great promise and hope. We persevere today. We obey today. We do what we should today because one day we're going to be seated at the master's table and we will dine. So until then, let us feed faithfully and regularly on the bread of life who is the source of life. Let us pray. Father, in your mercy and in your great provision, you provide for us as your children. And Father, forgive us for those times we just overlook who you are. 
Do we take for granted what you have given us? And we even fall into the trap of thinking that it is our hands and the strength of our might that are doing this. So, Father, we repent and we recognize that it all comes from you. And even as you energize us and use us in your service, we still recognize that that power comes from you as well. So, Father, may you find us as willing servants of yours, willing to share what we have, willing to point people to the bread of life, willing to feed daily ourselves on what you provide, and that we would do it joyfully. And as you provide, that there would be joy and a celebration in our hearts as we see what you're doing in and through us and in and through those around us who call upon the name of the Lord. Father, thank you for leading us this morning. Would you lead us this week for your glory and into a greater understanding of who you are. As we pray in Jesus' name.